0: Good morning, everyone. Go ahead and take a seat. It's good to see you all again. Uh, Today we're continuing with the series that we've been going through for a little while called Praying with Saints and Sinners as we look at different prayers throughout Scripture and see how we can apply them to our own prayers. So last week, if you were with us, we were looking at one of the Apostle Paul's prayers uh, in Ephesians chapter 1. And his prayer was that we might know God better, uh, not just know about God, be able to say, you know, that this is what God is like, he's, he's omniscient, He's omnipotent, He's omnipresent, not just what God is like, but actually know Him intimately, relationally. And this week, this morning, we're going to be looking at another of the Apostle Paul's prayers in First Thessalonians chapter 5, which we'll be reading in just a moment. Throughout our lives, we go through various periods of waiting. All of us have have experienced this, and and some periods of waiting are more significant than other periods of waiting that we experience. But what what we're waiting for usually affects how we wait. So, for instance, if we're waiting for a vacation, how are we going to wait? Let's say we've got two months to go probably we're going we're gonna to wait pretty passively. Uh, we're going to just put our head down, get on with work, uh, complete everything we have to, count down the days. That's how we're going to wait. Uh, but what if we are an athlete waiting for the Olympics? Uh, how are we going to wait then? And, and the chances are we, we wouldn't wait passively. We're not just going to th- sit down, and count down the days. We're going to train, and we're going to train, and we're going to train. We're going to try and become the best type of person that we can for the Olympics, because that's the goal that we're reaching towards. That's what we're waiting for. What we wait for usually affects how we wait. And sometimes as Christians, we can wonder, why are we still here? right? You know, I put my faith in Jesus. Why can't God just click His fingers and take us to heaven right now? All we're doing is just sitting around, counting down the days until Jesus returns, right? And yet, the way that Scripture explains this waiting period between when we first trust in Jesus and when we meet Him face to face is it's less like waiting for a vacation and more like waiting, if you're an athlete, for the Olympics. In First Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, I discipline my body and keep it under control Lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And this is at the heart of the Christian life. After we've been given this gift of grace, through faith, from God, we prepare for the return of Jesus by becoming more like Him. Many of the parables of Jesus talk about this exact thing. How to wait for His return. And this theme is found in our passage this morning as well. So let's go ahead and read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 to 24 together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 23 to 24. May God himself the God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Jesus, we ask you to open our hearts and minds this morning, that we would be receptive to what you want to teach us, what you want to teach us about how to pray well, what the priorities in our prayer life should be. Amen. We don't use the word sanctify very often, uh, it probably doesn't occur very often in the workplace, you're not going to get that written on your uh, yearly review. I uh, wish you were a bit more sanctified. And yet, in the Christian faith, the word sanctify is one of these really important vocabulary words. It's really important to the vocabulary of the church. And we talk about the process of sanctification. Uh, the Old Testament talks about the sanctuary in the temple uh, of God. And all it simply means is holiness. To sanctify means to make holy. Uh, Sanctification is the the means, the process of becoming more and more holy. Uh, A sanctuary is a holy place. The words holy and sanctify are actually translations of the same basic words in Scripture. So the New Testament, or the New Living Translation actually translates correctly, verse 23, as, Now may the God of peace make you holy. And the meaning of the word holy is essentially to be separate, uh, to be distinct from. And throughout the Bible, one of the most important attributes, characteristics of God that's repeated and, and explored time and time again is Holiness. The holiness of God. So when we say that God is holy, we're saying that He is separate. He is different. He is distinct from everything else. He is God, and everything else is not God. He is the creator, and everything else, from the galaxies to the atoms, and everything in between, is the created. God is in one category, and everything else is in an entirely separate, distinct category. And so, in in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah has this great vision of God, and he sees God high and lifted up, exalted on a throne as King of kings and Lord of lords. And this vision of God is so big that just the the corner, the edge of His robe, fills the entire temple. And the whole place is shaking, and it's filling with smoke. And there are these creatures with six wings flying around the Lord, and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation, we see this same cry. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And when Isaiah experiences this this chorus, this great vision of God, holy, holy, holy being sung, he is terrified. He says, woe to me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. The King James Version says, instead of I am ruined, I am undone. If any of you saw the um, Avengers Infinity War film, few years ago. You'll remember this, this climactic scene right at the very end where Thanos, the, the bad guy, snaps his fingers and we see shots of half of the characters start to dissolve away into dust. That's the image that Isaiah is giving us. That's what Isaiah is saying it's like when he comes face to face with the holiness of God. I am undone, Uh, without God's gracious intervention, he's going to disintegrate into dust because he recognizes that he is an unholy man standing in the presence of a holy God. Throughout Scripture, when we see people encounter the holiness of God, their reaction isn't joy. It's not peace. It's not hope instead it's it's terror they they fall down as though they're dead because they understood that what they were encountering was something that was entirely different from themselves someone who is distinct from themselves someone who's entirely different from themselves and part of this distinctiveness of God is his moral purity. So throughout the Bible, God's desires, what, what he likes, what, what he wants, his actions and his words are not the same as the other so-called gods in Scripture. It's not the same as, as the gods of the Canaanites or the gods of the Greeks. And, and so throughout the Old Testament, you see people pursue the god Molech by sacrificing their children. Uh, The prophets of Baal cut themselves in order to be heard by their God. The, The Greek gods are pursued by prostitution. And yet this is completely different from how God wants to be pursued, completely different from God's moral standard. After freeing his people from Egypt, he tells them, When you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not learn to imitate the nations before you. Don't be like them. Be like me instead. God loves justice and righteousness, loving and protecting and caring for the poor, the orphan, and the widow. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the attributes of God. And He calls His people to the same kind of holiness. Uh, Our calling to become more holy is based upon who God is Himself. Throughout the entire book of Leviticus... It's not an easy book to read. It's not an easy book to to get through. But the central theme of the book of Leviticus is the holiness of God. And time and again, this, this phrase, this sentence is repeated. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. The Apostle Peter says this as well. Just as he who called you is holy... So be holy in all that you do. For it's written, Be holy, because I am holy. If we're God's people, if we're His sons, if we're His daughters, then we should look like Him. You know, there's a sense in which if we've trusted in, in Jesus as our Savior, if we've repented of our sins, if we believe that He died, rose again victorious, he's the Son of God, then God has already set us apart. He's already made us holy, declared us holy, declared us distinct. And so the way that Paul begins a lot of his letters to the churches is to say, I'm writing to the saints who are in Ephesus or, or Rome or Philippi, or some other city. I'm writing to the saints in this city. And the word saint just means holy one. It's the same group of words as sanctification. Paul is saying, I'm writing to the ones that God calls holy, to, to the ones that God has set apart. In scripture, the word saint is isn't used the way that it's commonly used nowadays. Uh, Like, we tend to use the word as though, you know, Saint Augustine, Saint Patrick. There isn't this hierarchy, like, you know, most of us are just lowly Christians, but if you do something really special, then, then you get to be a saint. Instead, all of God's people are called saints. All of God's people are called holy ones. God has declared us holy, set us apart, made us distinct. But now that we've been put into this whole new category, then we're able to start living out this identity, to start being holy just as as God is holy. It's kind of like the relationship that we have to our biological parents. At the moment of conception... We share the DNA of our parents. We are, in a very real sense, their child at a fundamental, biological level. But it's also true that throughout life, we, we tend to, often, can reflect our parents more and more. How, how many of you, when you were younger, you looked at your parents and you said, I am never going to be like that. I'm never gonna say that. I'm never gonna do that. That's really annoying. I'm gonna be different. And then 20 years later, something comes out of your mouth, and you're like, My mother came out of my mouth. Like, <laughs> I've become the one I swore to destroy. No. Um, <laughs> although we begin our life as a child of our parents, this relationship often becomes clearer throughout our life, by what we do, by what we say, even by how we look. When we choose to trust Jesus, believe that he died and rose again, believe that he is our Savior, he has forgiven our sins, he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. There is a fundamental change to us. Jesus himself, in John chapter 3, says we're born again. We have the DNA of the Father. We have this holy DNA. The rest of our life is then spent expressing this holy DNA, expressing this new identity. So our calling to become more holy is based upon who God is Himself. He is holy. And upon what He has done already for us. He's declared us holy, and He's set us apart as His people. This is essentially the heart of the Christian faith, living in light of what God has already done for us, living in light of what God has already declared us to be. It's not about working your way to become a child of God. It's about when you trust Him, living in light of your status as a child of God, that, that gift of, of sonship, that gift of daughtership. By grace, through faith, he declares us one of his people, and now we get to live as one of his people. And this is what lies behind what Paul is praying in First Thessalonians chapter 5. May God himself... The God of peace sanctify you, make you holy through and through. He's praying that the Thessalonians will look more like their heavenly father. Through and through. That there will be no part of their lives left untouched. That that there's no do not enter sign on any part of their lives. Augustine, who was one of the, the great leaders of the early church in the 4th century or so, reflects upon his journey to faith. And he described it, um, he describes a particular point during this, this, this journey when he was wrestling, when he cried out to God, he prayed to God, Lord, make me holy, but not yet. Paul is praying that that won't be our prayer. Paul's praying that there will be no part of our lives left untouched, that we won't pray, Lord, make me holy. But you can leave, you know, the things that come out of my mouth, you can just leave that for the moment. I kind of like that how it is. Lord, make me holy. But not what I watch on TV. You know, maybe if we get to that, like, in a few decades... Lord, make me holy. But can you just leave this part of my life for the moment? Because it's really fun and I don't kind of want to mess with it. God calls us to release every part of our lives, every area of our lives. But this morning, it isn't just about encouraging us to become more holy. And it's the same in this passage. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, just a a bit before where we read, Paul says, It's God's will that you should be sanctified, made holy. And then he goes on to explain what this means. And he goes on to to encourage, like stir up the church to, to pursue holiness. To, to strive after holiness. And it, in fact, that's what most of chapters 3 to 5 is. Uh, before we ever get to our passage, he's he's encouraging his listeners, this, this church, to pursue holiness. But when we get to verse 23, he actually wants us to, rem, to remind us of something else. It, it, his prayer is, covers slightly different ground. He wants to remind us that we are not the only ones at work. That's why he prays, may God sanctify you through and through. God is the one who has declared them holy, and he is the one who enables them to become more holy. By praying for holiness, we are recognizing that it's only by God's help that we can become more holy. It doesn't mean it's easy for us. It doesn't mean that it doesn't take discipline, like an athlete training, but it is recognizing God's rightful place in the process. It's recognizing that God is the source of everything that is good. Everything that's good. The one who's declared us holy doesn't now kind of leave us on our own. Go on, guys. You do the rest of it. I'll see, you know, I'll check in in a few thousand years when Jesus returns. Or maybe tomorrow when Jesus returns. Whenever Jesus returns. Check in with you then. See how you're doing. He is with us at the beginning. And he is with us, beside us, every step of the way. And he's with us at the end as well, which brings us to the rest of the passage. Halfway through verse 23. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Paul doesn't just pray about the process of becoming more and more holy, he, he actually prays about the completion of our holiness at the second coming when Jesus returns again. To put it simply, God's people have been made holy, our being made increasingly holy, and will be one day made perfectly holy. Here's why I think this is a good reminder. As far as it depends on God, you will be made holy. He's not going to abandon you. He's not unreliable. He's not uh, unfaithful. A couple of months ago, we had this, um, the the light bulb above our stovetop. It just kept turning off randomly, um, and it was really inconsistent. And uh, I kind of discovered that if you just kind of hit the side of it, then it would turn back on. Um, I I don't know that much about DIY, as you may be able to tell. Um, But if you kind of just hit the side of it, then it would turn uh, back on. And it kind of worked for maybe a week or so, and then that stopped working. That's not who God is. He, he's not this inconsistent light bulb that turns off and turns on kind of depending on what what mood he's in. He's consistent. He is reliable, steadfast, faithful. Some of us sitting here this morning are are deeply concerned because of the sins that we're still struggling with after years. Uh, and there is an expectation in Scripture that we make progress. You know, if, if our whole lives look the same 10 years later on, that's a big problem. That, that, that's not the picture that we see in Scripture. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone, and be holy Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But at the same time, Paul's prayer reminds us that we will never be perfectly holy in this life. That we will still wrestle with sin. There's a certain peace that comes with that and a peace that comes knowing that one day we will be made completely holy. It's the promise of God. When we won't struggle with the same sins, uh, when you won't struggle to, to not shout and become angry every time the little thing comes wrong, when you won't struggle to be envious because you see someone that you think looks better than you, When you won't struggle to keep your thoughts pure and focused on your spouse. That's the guarantee that God gives us. That's the goal that He is leading us towards and will one day lead us to that we will arrive at. So there are two parts that need to be held in tension the real challenge to strive after holiness with the help of God. And the real hope that God will one day make us perfectly, completely holy. We can't separate these two things. So how often do we pray about holiness? When was the last time that we prayed to be more holy? When was the last time that we prayed for our kids, for our small group, for our pastors to be more holy? When we hear about a conflict in a friend's life, the first thing we pray is that this, this conflict with a family member will just be resolved, or that they'll grow more holy through this situation. That God will help them express patience, uh, kindness, love in the same way that He does. Kevin DeYoung, who's a, who's a pastor, says, The world provides no cheerleaders on the pathway to holiness. When we know that there are brothers and sisters at hillside who, who go to work, who go to schools that are hostile to their faith, where they are pressured into acting inconsistently with their faith, do we pray that they would be steadfastly holy? Do we pray that even when it's not popular, they would choose the the, the difficult path of holiness, even when it hurts, not comfort, not an easy life, not the absence of suffering, but holiness through everything that they encounter. We live in an age of of distraction, self-fulfillment, things that work against a sustained pursuit of holiness. Do we pray that we wouldn't be distracted? We would keep our eyes fixed upon the goal the goal that God is leading us to, the return of Jesus, preparing for that day. What priority does the subject of holiness have in our prayers?